Good morning. Um, we're going to jump right in today. Uh, we're in the season of Advent, and just in case some of you haven't been here, maybe you're unfamiliar with what that is, I just want to recap just a little bit about what it's, uh, what's entailed in that, what it's all about. Advent literally means arrival. And so, as I said when we started this series, Advent has taken on this meaning, actually, of not just arrival, but of expectation. Like, we're expecting something to happen. And... We're going to dedicate, well, we dedicate the first four weeks uh, right before we celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus. And we're very intentional about waiting uh, for this day and looking forward to this day. And uh, lots of churches do it lots of different ways, and we've done it a lot of different ways too. But the thing that I really want to stress this morning as we think about our theme of peace and really in the coming weeks is there's an element of this that we have to be, I don't really know how to say it other than it's active on our part in that we have to be intentional about setting aside some of the stuff that kind of comes with this season as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The rush and the crush. Black Friday, right? All that stuff, all that stuff that, that has connected itself to this season for the world, sometimes it can kind of sneak in there for us and we get so caught up in what we feel like should be happening and when it's not, we completely sort of, we lose our focus on what this is really about. And I think even for us as believers, it can happen. And so what we're trying to do is be intentional about looking forward to the reason that we celebrate because you know what? It's not our birthday. You ever thought about that? We all get gifts, but it's Jesus' birthday that we celebrate, that we honor in that moment. But we expect the gifts. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that sometimes we make it more about us and what we're doing versus what he should be doing in us. And so there, there we go. But last week we talked about holding out for hope and this idea of what that should look like for our lives. And I shared this with you. Hope is an expectation of the fulfillment of something desired or promised. And really every one of the themes that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks, whether it's a peace this week or joy next week or love on the fourth week, all of them are couched in this first theme of hope because that's what they're all about. And so the arrival of Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these long-held hopes that God's people had. They'd been promised for years that God was going to do something about the situation that we were in. And so they looked forward to that. And likewise, as we wait, uh, it transforms us as we anticipate Messiah's second coming. Waiting in anticipation is really what this is all about. And so the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus welcomes all of us into this hope, but it's like a hope-filled waiting. You're looking forward to something that, that has happened, but yet it kind of hasn't happened. And so you're looking forward to that, and that's what that hope's about. So we're going to be in First Peter, and he's writing to people who needed hope. Uh, they were refugees. They were spread out all over uh, the, basically Rome at that time. They'd been pushed out of their homes because of what they believed. Uh, they'd been ostracized by some of the people that were their neighbors and their friends. Many were persecuted by the Roman, Roman government. Many had died for this cause. And so he's writing to these people, and he's wanting them to embrace a way of living that is the exact opposite 
of maybe what they're seeing around them. And so that's what he's going to talk about. And so even so, Peter challenges all of these men, these women. Uh, he talks to free people. He talks to people who were slaves in this time. He talks to Jewish people and also people who were not Jewish that were living all over the empire. And he's like, listen, the way that you live your lives, guys, needs to be a light for Messiah no matter where you go, no matter where you find yourselves or what situation that you're in. And so what I like about this and where we're at is that no matter where you look, like if, if the coming of our Messiah is kind of the middle point, let's just say, uh, you can look before that or you can look after that. And you will see that in the scriptures, you'll notice things like lament or sadness mixed in with this hope. You'll notice longing and sorrow mixed in with like people that are genuinely excited to see what God's going to do. And the reason that that excites me is because I think it's where we find ourselves today, Right? You know, we can have moments where we're like at the highest of highs and we're really happy and and good things are happening in our lives. But then all we have to do is look around this world and see something or look on the news or whatever it is. And that can kind of be just snatched away in a minute. Not to mention the personal hardships that many of us might be going through right now. I mean, I bet everybody in this room has something. Right, that they could say, well, right now this is hard for me. Maybe more than one something. Maybe you've got more than your fair share right now. Well, I want you to know that uh, we find ourselves in the same place that these folks were finding themselves as Peter was speaking to them. And they're right smack dab in the middle of a mess, right? All humanity longs to have this straightened out and cleaned up. That's what we long for, our heart of hearts. That's what we want to see. And so like the prophets before us, we wait. That's what we're doing. And so we're going to be in First Peter uh, chapter 3. Now, Peter has, spending, has spent all this time giving some instruction uh, to these households and the various people that were in them on how they should live now that uh, their lives have been transformed by Jesus. So that's the context. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say this. Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So what he's doing here is he's challenging this body of believers he writes to. He starts off with this mutual respect in relationships. But then he goes on to say he's actually shifting this not just to those households, but to everybody who can hear him. That's why he says, finally, all of you. That's what he means by that. And so it's a challenge for everybody that can hear this. And he's like, I've got five things that I need you to concentrate on. And here's what they are. First, unity of mind. Be of like mind. In other words, serving other people versus our self-interests. The second one is sympathy. And it's suffering with other people. It's entering into their experiences so that we share their sorrows. But we also share their joys. It's like all of that is shared and kind of distributed among all of these people who are trying to live this life together. Uh, Paul says in Romans twelve fifteen, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That's what he's saying here. He's like, listen, you're brothers and sisters now. You've got to carry the burden of this whole thing together. The third one is brotherly love. And the secret here is relating so closely to someone. It's very connected to the first to the second one. We relate so closely to somebody that we feel whatever is happening to our brothers and sisters. So it's kind of like... Um, if any of you, how many of you have a brother or a sister, like a real life brother or sister, right? And the rule is usually this, like you can mess with them or they can mess with you, but nobody else can mess with your brother or your sister, right? So like if you catch somebody that's picking on your brother or your sister, it's like, no, I'm the only person that gets to do that, okay? Right? 
this is kind of the same thing here. It's like, listen, whatever's happening to them is happening to us. And so we have to stand and not only stand up for them, maybe in this case, but also stand with them in this case too. That's the way family should take care of one another. The, the fourth one is to be tenderhearted. Uh, your version might say compassionate. And this simply means people who notice and people who respond So it's not just noticing the needs of other people, but it's actually responding to the needs of other people. Because it's easy to notice, like, oh, wow, that's really a bummer for you. I'm sorry. See ya. But to actually get in there and risk, maybe even in the climate of the world we live in now, where uh, jumping in to help someone might and might, you might end up in a lawsuit. Right? I know it sounds ridiculous, but things like that happen. And his point is like, listen, compassion doesn't care. Compassion sees the need and compassion responds to the need of others instead of ignoring them. Loving consideration that expresses itself in action. That's what he's calling us to. And then the fifth one is uh, being of a humble mind. And that's from Romans twelve thirteen. Humble people are those who are conscious of their own position as God's creatures. Right? It's like, I know that I was made by God. And I know that I was not worth what he did for me. Yet, he still found a value in me. He still loved me. So therefore, how in the world should I think less of someone else? Right? Because if we're all God's creatures, we were all created by him. Then we're no better than someone else. So we don't think more highly of ourselves than we do of other people. And that's what Paul's talking about in that verse. You can check that out later. But in verse 9, Peter reminds us of the Messiah's commandment regarding how we're supposed to love, love other people. And he says it a little differently, but it's basically, do not repay evil for evil, but uh, remember why you were created. And I think this is cool because we ask this question all the time. It's like, well, what's my purpose in life? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what am I made? What was I made for? Or why am I here, God? Or what do you have for me? Or what's your will for my life? I think Peter answers the question here. He's like, listen, the reason that you're here is to bless other people. The reason that God has blessed you is so that you can bless other people. The reason that God saved you. The reason that God responded to Hosanna, which is save us. The reason that he sent Emmanuel, God with us, the whole idea is to bless us so that we could bless other people. So that this family wouldn't just be this tight-knit group of tiny, this little tiny thing, but that it could explode and it it would encompass everyone, anyone who would heed the call of the Savior and turn their lives over to him. So really, Peter's giving us a correction here. And it should feel, feel kind of like a special caution. Like, this is a cautionary thing that he's saying here in a way. For those instances where maybe somebody treats you a certain way, and you want to respond in the same way. Like, somebody lashes out at you, and so you're instant, you know, say, Oh, you unleash the dragon now! It's on! Right? Oh, no, you did not say that, right? Or when your child calls for you to come into the room yet a third time at night. Mirror, hello. What?! What is it this time, right? What God wants us to understand here is like, listen, that's not how my people are supposed to behave. It's like, yeah, people are going to do bad things to you. People are going to treat you in ways that aren't pleasant. And these guys knew specifically what he was talking about, maybe in a way that we will never understand. And his point is like, listen, you're my people, and my people behave differently. 
Because often we feel like we're justified in treating people the way that we've been treated. But that's not what Jesus said, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's like we should be acting the way that we would hope others would treat us. And that's a tough thing to do. I realize that. So as part of that purpose that we have in life, to be a blessing to other people, that's a little bit of what it looks like. Because Jesus calls us to better than what the world offers, right? In every case, Jesus always raises the bar. Jesus always sets the standard. Jesus is always like, listen, you know, yeah, I know you heard it said this way. And that was good. But I say, right? So if you're wondering why you were made today and you wonder why you've been called to be a part of a community of believers, I don't think it gets any clearer than the scripture here in First Peter. We were made to be a blessing. We were made to bless others and not curse them would probably be a good way to put this. We were made to bring life to people, bring life to the lives of other people versus bringing evil or death. And so with this in mind... Peter does something cool, and actually he's just following in the footsteps of many of the apostles and Jesus himself, and he looks back towards the Old Testament. He quotes scripture from the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew passage from Psalms 34. But before I read it to you, as he takes it into this context, I want us to understand something here because he's communicating something really powerful. And that's one of the things I love about these guys. When they reach back and they pull something in, they're like, okay, this is so good that it even says it way back here. Like, this is so good. I'm not saying anything new, people, right? It's like, here it is, right here. So he communicates something powerful here. This is a passage that is a promise. It's a promise that we obtain when we treat people well in the way that he's outlined here in verses 8 and 9. He's like, listen, guys, when you love each other and are of one mind, when you are compassionate and sympathetic with the needs of your brothers and sisters as humble servants, right? Because none of us are better than anyone else. When you go the extra mile to repay evil and insults with kindness and life-giving words, and if Peter were alive today, he'd say, including Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. (laughs) Right? When you're giving words of life in this regard, you are doing what God has called you to do, and he's going to bless you for that. He's going to be with you. So let's take a look at it. Again, he's quoting from Psalm 34, and here it is, verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 3. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we were just in James, most of you know that, and we spent a lot of time talking about this. Remember the silly string container thing that we did? So I'm not going to unpack all of that here, but let me just say this. If you missed that or if you've forgotten it, that podcast is available. I'm just going to encourage you to listen to it. It's probably one that I should listen to once a week because so often... It seems like this is just a hard one for us. But the basic idea is this. Anytime that we speak, anytime that we say anything, regardless of what the words are, we have a choice. We have a choice to speak words of life and encouragement, or we have a choice to speak words of death and evil. There's not really an in-between, according to Scripture. It's either one or the other, which is pretty convicting. So 
Peter takes that idea and he echoes the sentiments of James and Jesus and others that call us to be people that give life to others. Blessing others, right, that's why we're blessed. So not only in our speech, but in our actions. And as a matter of fact, Peter goes on to say there's a direct connection between being life-giving people and our Advent theme of peace. You see it right there? Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So as we apply this passage to our lives, as I started to read this, of course, the first thing I do is ask all kinds of questions. Because we like to qualify it. It's like, okay, well, what, is, what does he really mean? I mean, that's impossible. Come on, Pete, seriously. Think anybody could do that? So I started thinking about the questions that I see here. The first one, well, what do you exactly mean by do good, Peter? Or, how do we seek peace? Because it seems like my ability to to make peace happen is pretty limited in my world. And then the third one, if this is a promise, what is God promising and who is this promise to? And so we're going to try and answer those questions. But before we do that, we need to define our terms because uh, peace can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's a very common word. We throw it around a lot. But we don't really necessarily think about what the word peace means. And so lots of times, this is what we think of when we say the word peace, right? Yeah, man, peace, all right. Yeah. That guy. I think he used to go to our church. Anyway, um, that might be what we think about. Or you might think about peace on earth, like places like the Middle East or North Korea, right? Right now is kind of the big one. We think about all of these things that uh, North Korea is doing to kind of rattle the cages of the people around them and testing missiles and stuff. And we're like, you know what? We need some peace there. And peace can mean that when we talk about peace treaties or times of peace, we usually think it means an absence of war. Like no one's fighting right now, so therefore we have peace. And that's true. In Scripture, in the Bible, the word peace can refer to an absence of conflict. But there's actually a lot more to the story because the biblical definition of peace points to something more. It points to the presence of something better in its place. So like if there's conflict and the conflict is gone, when the peace comes, the peace is actually something better in the place of whatever was there. So we have two words that are used in Scripture for peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And that's probably the one that most of you are most familiar with. And then the Greek word for peace is irene, which I like to say because it's fun. So you have shalom and you have irene. And the most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole, which is interesting. But this concept goes to a much deeper. Uh, deeper level. And so I was going to extrapolate all of this for you, but I found a video that does a great job and it's a lot shorter and it has graphics. I don't have any of those things short. I don't have that. I've got the long version. You don't want that. You want the short version and you want the video because you have short attention spans and you like YouTube and it's all right. And Vine's coming back. I know you're celebrating. You don't care. Anyway, here's the video. Check it out. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. 
The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of Shalom, And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. So there you go. Pretty cool, huh? Do you ever hear English or like think about English and kind of feel like you got ripped off just a little bit? Like, other languages have this richness to their words. And, you know, we just throw peace around or love around like it's candy or confetti. But when you get into these words and you start to look at them deeply, that's one of the things that I loved about the dictionary as a kid. Yeah, I was that kid. I was a nerd. Like, I loved the dictionary because there were all these aspects of words that I didn't, you know, just when people would talk about stuff, I would miss it. Or I, I didn't know. I didn't know the, the deep meaning. And so I could actually use those words and feel like I meant so much more. Anyway, um, the core idea here with peace or shalom, as we'll say, it's holistic. It is all-encompassing. Uh, when you think about uh, Jesus 
in your life. And I hope this really changes something for you because a lot of times we look at Jesus and, and what he did in coming for us and the moment where he came and he kind of, we always kind of put it as like he sort of fixed stuff. Or like, yeah, he fixed stuff for me, but there's still all of this world that's jacked up. But the truth of the matter is, in this context and definition and what we're going to look at, Jesus fixed everything. He completed everything when he came. And yeah, he's going to come again and he's going to settle everything once and for all. But this is amazing. The peace that he offers us today. There's this underlying idea uh, with peace that means wholeness, right? Or completion. And the only thing that I can think of this, and I know that Josh Morgan will be able to relate to this. And I promise I had, I had not any idea of what you were going to post on Facebook before I said this, okay? Just want to be clear about that. So this is prophecy. I'm just kidding. Um, so when I was a kid, my dad loved puzzles. And he would often, because he was sort of like the swap and shop garage sale guru, he loved it. I mean, that's, I come by it honestly. It's just, it is what it is. And I do not apologize for that. However, um, he would buy these puzzles, you know, these thousand piece puzzles. And we had this big, huge, like gold all I know to call it is like a brownie pan. Like it was an industrial-sized brownie pan because, remember, eight kids, hello, a lot of brownies, okay? And so we had this brownie pan that had these edges, and my dad would start the puzzle in the middle of this gold. I don't know why it was gold. It's like very, like, well, we're really working on something here, right, this gold tray. So we would put the puzzle on the tray so that we could easily move it off the table for dinner and whatever else needed to happen there. And so inevitably, my dad would buy these used puzzles, right? And we would get to the end of the puzzle, and guess what happened? There would be one piece that was missing. One piece. And so my little sister and I, thinking we were super clever, lots of times we would get a piece of notebook paper, and we would try to complete the drawing with a ballpoint pen and then cram it into the spot just so we could say we were done. Oh, we did it. Yay, we're done. Right? There was this weird thing where we needed to bring closure to that situation uh, for, for the parents in the room, but I think especially for the moms. You experience this when you have some type of a family celebration or a family gathering and one of your kids aren't there. Don't you? Dads feel that to a certain degree, but I think for the moms, it's a bigger deal when the whole brood isn't there for that moment. There's an incompleteness that maybe everyone feels. Or if you've ever tried to put together a model that you actually have to glue together. Or if uh, you've ever tried to assemble anything from Ikea. Or if you've tried to repair something and you get to a point in the project where there are pieces missing. Even after four trips to the hardware store. Because you can never just make one trip to the hardware store when it comes to a project. If you've ever experienced that, you have experienced a lack of shalom because something was incomplete. And so shalom encompasses every complex part of your life and my life. Every part of our existence is encompassed in shalom. And so when any aspect, folks, of the relationships or the situations in your life or in my life are out of alignment with another person, but particularly with Adonai, shalom, right? The Lord is peace. That's, that's one of the names or the references to his character we have in Scripture. When anything is out of alignment with him or with other people or just plain missing, your shalom is off. It's incomplete. It breaks down. Life is no longer whole. And in that moment, it needs to be restored, but not by anything that we can do in those cases, particularly with God involved. 
but only with what we do in connection with him and how we permit him to do things in our lives. So shalom means perfect. It means complete, nothing missing. Uh, It also can represent a person's well-being. Peace expresses our deepest desire and need of our human hearts. Even if we don't talk about it a lot, the truth of the matter is that peace expresses something from our hearts because it represents the greatest measure of contentment and satisfaction in life. If you ever think about a time where you felt like you were completely at peace and at rest, and maybe you've never felt that way. But if you think about a time where maybe you're, you're sitting and you're overlooking just something beautiful in the mountains as the sun is setting and you have your coffee in your hand and you've just eaten a wonderful meal and you're surrounded by all the people that you love and you look out and you are at peace. You are content. You are complete. There's nothing else that you need because you are surrounded by everything that you need in that moment. That's what it looks like. But here's the thing. Shalom can also be used as a verb. In fact, it can be every part of speech, which is pretty cool. To bring shalom literally means to make peace or to complete or restore something. You bring shalom when you finish something that was started. Uh, If you are at fault in a car accident, let's say, like you did something wrong and you caused this wreck, you would bring shalom in that situation when you settle up with that other person so that uh, the problems with their car that you caused are covered. And uh, anything that has to do with them being hurt is actually taken care of and covered. They have a complete repayment for their loss in that situation. Then you bring shalom or your insurance company brings shalom in that case. But really you did because you've been making the payment. So uh, the same is true in a human relationship, right? You bring shalom when you reconcile or you heal a broken relationship. And here's the interesting thing. It could be your fault, but maybe it's not too. And that's tough. For us, And you can check out Proverbs 16, verse 7, if you want to know more about that. So like with nations, for example, that are fighting, to make shalom means that they stop fighting and they start working together for each other's benefit. So when we talk about like Middle East peace, for example, and why that's so hard, it's like, why can't everybody just stop hurting people? You know, that's the question that we ask. But the truth of the matter is, it's more in that culture and context than just not fighting It's the mutual benefit for each other that's the hard part. And that's why it's a struggle. So when it comes to shalom, you replace what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. So as we explore this concept of peace in light of the season of Advent and of waiting, we encounter this passage and Isaiah is kind of the big dude when it comes to prophecy and when it comes to this season. We read a lot uh, from his a portion of scripture. And so he's often quoted at this time of year. And this is coming from Isaiah chapter 9. Now, lots of times we don't read verse 5. We just skip right on to the real warm, fuzzy part of verse 6. But I feel like verse 5 is great because it illustrates what's happening here, that shalom is coming. So verse 5 says, Isaiah chapter 9, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then it goes on to say, for, un, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Sar Shalom is what it would be in Hebrew. Isaiah looked forward to this future king, this Prince of Shalom. And the only reason that he could be a Prince of Shalom is because he comes from Adonai Shalom, God of Shalom, right? 
the king of Shalom. And his reign would bring Shalom with no end. Wars and rumors of war would no longer cause anxiety. Wouldn't that be nice? No stress would threaten us because all things would be made right. There'd be a time when God would make a covenant or a contractual promise of eternal shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. Physically, mentally, spiritually, bringing shalom to all of those things. Jesus is that future king, but he's the king now too, okay? We look forward to this day when he will come again and he will completely write all of the things. But we have a responsibility in this as well. The nativity or his birth signals his first coming when he got things started through his life and through his death and his resurrection. And that's the way that we enter into this story so that we as believers have this hope of following him into that wholeness. But not only that, blessing others with it as well. We'll follow him into eternity when he comes again. And we, everybody at that point will recognize him as king. And it's going to be amazing. But Advent is weird. I'll be honest. It's this weird time, this tension that we have as we recognize that we're sort of kind of caught in between these two worlds. And we don't like tension. It makes us uncomfortable. We like resolution. We like when the person plays that particular chord, we want that chord to be resolved. And you don't, may not even know what I'm talking about, but your heart knows what I'm talking about. Where you can leave music in one place or you can take it to another and then everyone does the, ah. We are caught in between the already and the not yet. That's a weird thing to say, but it's true. We're caught in between the already and the not yet. And here's what's even weirder. If you mean to blow your mind today, here it comes. It's all already happened as far as God's concerned. Woo! Time warp. What do I do with that? We're talking about wormholes. What's going on here, Pastor Bill? You just blew my mind. This isn't a Star Trek episode, is it? Maybe. I don't know. We are caught in between the already and the not yet. So in the midst of this waiting... People who are living lives in this broken world wait for shalom. And Peter says, we have a mission. We can be that. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. What does that mean? It means to seek peace and pursue it. To seek shalom. To seek completing things that need to be completed. To look for incomplete places and step into those incomplete places so that you can bring completion to them. That's our mission. God's people seek to restore his shalom to this world in the way that we love other people. A lot of P's in this statement right here. But hopefully it'll help you remember it. People of the promise in pursuit of peace. That's who we are called to be. We are to be a light revealing the completeness or shalom that others can have. And the only way that they even want it is if they see it in our lives, right? If we always look like we're on scramble watch, like DEFCON 5 every time they're around us, that, that doesn't incite a whole lot of confidence in the peace of the God of peace. Or the Prince of Peace, does it? Others will know this if we live the way that God calls us to live. And 
he outlined it right there with the way that we treat them and the way that we treat other people, especially the way that we treat each other. Church, you guys here? All right, good, good. So God calls us to live this way and actively seek to restore peace or shalom in the lives of others. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we pursue peace? And there's three areas that need peace in our world, and we're almost done here. So the first one is this. We pursue peace with God in our own lives. And I think that goes without saying, but I want to hit it here just in case. First and foremost, if you don't have peace between you and God, you're not going to have it anywhere else, ever, at all. It's not going to happen. So the root cause of our brokenness and incompletion is a fractured relationship with our Father. And so that has to be mended first and foremost because none of the other things matter if we can't make that right. And the good news is we didn't have to make it right because he did. Sin fractured our world and our relationship with God, but we have hope. John 1, starting with verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's amazing right there, folks. Children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus brought shalom, peace, completeness, wholeness to that relationship. And you can have that right here and right now. It's not something we have to wait for. He offers it right to us and he says, here it is. All you have to do is believe. Turn from the way that you're living for yourself and follow me. Here we go. And it's an adventure, trust me. The second place we can pursue this peace is in our relationships. And that's what Peter and all of the New Testament writers refer to when they encourage us to love and care for one another. And it starts within this body, like churches, just like this one, everywhere that are proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's the idea. He wants all of those places for the people within those bodies, no matter where they are on this planet, to love each other and treat each other in this way. And then that should spread into the worlds, everywhere that we touch, every relationship in our world. That's what we should seek to have it look like as we care and love uh, each other. John fifteen thirteen talks about this person that's willing to lay down their life for others. It describes a true brother as somebody who's willing to lay down their life for other people. And lots of times we talk about that, and it's kind of easy, especially for the guys in the room. Like, yeah, I'd take a bullet for you, man. I'd totally jump right in the way, man. Because I love you, man. Brian, I love you. I'd do that for you, right? It's easy for us to talk about it in that way, but there's this whole sidebar conversation that we need to think about, and it's this. It's more than just a willingness to die for other people. It's actually a commitment to surrender our self-focused ways of living for the benefit of other people. Dying in that way, have you ever thought about that? Because that's a lot harder. A lot harder. Proverbs 6.3, we humble ourselves when we've wronged other people. Ephesians 4.15, we speak the truth in love. Always from this heart of restoration and completion. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 14, he challenged us to extend God's free gift of love and mercy even to the people that have wronged us, regardless of what they've done, because God did that first. Those who have wronged us and broken the shalom in our lives are supposed to Extend forgiveness to them. So that's the second place. Pursue peace in our relationships. And then the third one is pursuing peace in our world. And 
uh, our presence in this world is supposed to change things, folks, for the better, I should say. Because <laughs> our presence in this world as Christians a lot of times does change things, but it's not always for the better. Right? And so what God calls us to is he wants us to be a people that when people are around us, they like it. It's actually pleasant, and, uh, and they see things in our lives that they want to emulate because it's attractive to them. And so a lot of times, we miss the mark on that one, but the apostles, Jesus, God, they all believe that we can do this, or they wouldn't challenge us with it, right? So that ultimately, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. We can bring shalom to this world, and part of that can be about bringing like end to conflicts, whether it's in other people's relationships or places where uh, people are being treated poorly. And I think that that's one thing that the church excels at, actually, is when we see a need, we see people hurting in this world, the church is usually the first group. Believers are the first ones to get there. But it's also about something else. It's about helping people find the missing pieces to the puzzles in their lives. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are, that's us, we are ambassadors of the Messiah. In effect, God is making his appeal through us. What we do is appeal on behalf of the Messiah. Be reconciled to God. God made this sinless man be a sin offering on our behalf so that in union with him, we might fully share in God's righteousness. It speaks of reconciliation, which means to reestablish fellowship between two parties or two or more parties. Reconciliation is reestablishing fellowship between groups. And Jesus came to reestablish fellowship between God and man, and he gives us that same ministry. So it's our job, responsibility, mission honor, whatever you want to call it, right? To bring peace. And we can only do this because he's given us peace. So our work, our mission, your mission in life is to reconcile, to make shalom on behalf of our Messiah. And that's what Peter calls us to do when he commands us to do good. And because Jesus has reconciled us to the Father, God looks upon us as righteous, which is cool. Because it's something that we could not have attained on our own. Every effort that we would have had, in the end, we would have always fallen short. But because of the grace and mercy and love of God, he offers us his righteousness through his son. And then it goes on, of course, in the verse that we're in today, that when all this comes together the way it's supposed to, he hears our prayers and honors those prayers. And a lot of times I think we can say, you know, people will say, well, so basically if I live this way, God will give me whatever I want. Because it says right there that, well, you know, whenever I pray, he's going to hear it in his ear and stuff. Well, to a certain degree. I think the point in the context here is like he will hear the prayers that we pray in honor of this mission and he will honor those prayers, right? God wants us to have good things and he wants to empower us to accomplish his will. And anytime we're praying within that realm... He's going to be all over it because he wants to see those same things happen. So as we wrap this up, when we find our shalom in the Father, Adonai shalom, and then when we do that, we can be about his business, and he's going to give us whatever we need to help us make shalom in this world. But it's all in anticipation for that final advent when the Prince of Peace comes to make shalom once and for all. That's exciting. That should be exciting to you. I know it's not Joy Week yet, but that should be exciting. Okay? So this season and beyond, 
May you and I be people of the promise in pursuit of peace, continually seeking, seeking our shalom with the Lord. And that simply means inviting God to search our hearts, as David said, to know us, to, to root out any of those wicked weeds, as I call them, in that garden that we have there that should be his and his alone, that we would continually seek shalom in our relationships, that we would be devoted to one another in love, as Paul says in Romans 12, that we would honor one another above ourselves, and that we would continue to seek shalom in this world. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Oh, God, we thank you so much um, for being everything that we could not be and for extending your grace and your mercy to us. I thank you that you are a God that is a God of peace, or at least that's an aspect of who you are. And that you are a God of love. And as we look around this world and we see others that maybe serve God, whether it's themselves or other deities that they've identified or whatever it is, God, so often they are not uh, peaceful people. And so, Father, I pray that in the context of this world where we, we, we feel like it's out of control sometimes, we know that it's not, that you hold all things into your hands and that uh, you see everything that's happening and that you work for your purposes in everything that happens. And even though that's hard for us to understand, God, I pray that you would help us to fulfill our mission, that we would be men and women who bring shalom, that the love, the peace that we have in our hearts, God, that you would settle us first with you and then with the people surrounding us and then with this world. And when that gets hard, God, when conflict comes or hard things happen, I pray that we wouldn't be people that would respond out of hate or out of our selfishness or out of whatever else happens to be there. But that we could honor the words of our Messiah who came for us and love others the way that you loved us. That we could love others even better than ourselves, God. So for those that are here today or that can hear my voice and maybe they're struggling because they don't have a lot of peace in their lives right now. Maybe they feel like they're holding on by just a thread. I just pray, God, that you would enter into those situations, that that there would just be, in their lives, your presence would be felt. That in the tension that we have of waiting, God, that we would see you moving, that we would hear your voice, that we would see these little glimpses of the things that you're doing. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit in our hearts as your people would urge us on to step into those situations. For those of us that surround the people, especially in this community here that might be going through something, God, that that we wouldn't just stand back and watch, but that we would jump in, that we would get involved, that we would show your love, God, and your mercy. We love you, and we thank you for all that you do for us and continue to do for us. But we thank you most importantly for just who you are. That's who we worship. We thank you. Amen. Revolution,